on episode 124 of the Vincast, I chat with Matt Holmes, winemaker for Cult Geelong Winery, Bannockburn Vineyards. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino. And thank you to everyone who listened to the most recent episode with Mac Forbes. It was fantastic to uh, to hear from people that they enjoyed it. Uh, but also thank you to those of you who watched my uh, Let's Taste of uh, one of Mac's wines, the 2015 Coldstream Pinot Noir. And I was joined by a very special guest on that, uh, my now seven-month-old son, Oliver, uh, who was very, very well-behaved, sitting on my knee as I tasted uh, some wine. Uh, and it was great to have him uh, in that video. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and if you head to the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel, please do subscribe uh, because you will probably find uh, another new episode of uh, Let's Taste with uh, some Bannockburn wines, uh, who, which was, were made by my guest for this episode, uh, Matt Holmes, who has uh, incredible experience working in wineries uh, around the world. And I was uh, lovely to sit down with him and find out more about that background. Um, particularly his influence at Bannockburn Vineyards, which is uh, quite an amazing producer based just out of Geelong. So uh, I do hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Stick around to the end so you can find out how to get in touch with uh, Matt and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Matt, thank you very much for uh, for making the trek to record here in the the Vincast studio as it is. Uh, And uh, thank you for being on the Vincast. been wanting to have you on for quite a while, so welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, I start every episode, as my listeners would know, by uh, uh, asking my guests if they can remember if it was a particular uh, experience in their life, a, a singular moment that uh, sort of set them on the path towards a wine career, or um, did you just happen to find yourself working in, in the wine industry? I Yeah, I was working in a wine shop when I was doing an engineering degree and initially that wasn't anything except for a wage. But um, Whereabouts was that? That was in Sydney. And, yeah, and uh, that's where you're from? That's where I'm from, yeah. So I was, uh, yeah, I guess slowly introduced to the story of wine and uh, yeah, gradually got to love it more and more and see more and more of the, the, the possibilities. But, uh, you know, having grown up in Sydney, I didn't really think uh, of wine as a as a career, it's not as you know sort of obvious from Sydney as it is from Melbourne to see the Yarra Valley, for example. I don't uh, actually think I'd ever been to the Hunter Valley as a kid. So, were your parents in, interested in wine at all? Uh, my father's been drinking wine for a long time, and and funnily enough, my grandfather was a great uh, sort of wine lover too, which is less common for people my age. Uh, then I think it will be for our grandchildren to say that your grandfather actually drank, you know, table wine. So he was one of those people. And my uncle actually dabbled in a bit of winemaking as well. Really? Whereabouts mm. was that? That was in the Southern Highlands, so, oh. yeah, south side of Sydney. Okay. Uh, and so you were studying engineering and what, what – what, so a wine shop was just a, a sort of a part-time job to, to fund hey, the, rent, the, yeah, the student life. lifestyle. Yep, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Cost price uh, beer initially, which was nice. important for an engineering degree. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, as I say, then wine, which was a big part of what this store was about. It was, you know, they obviously sell beer just like every wine shop does, but 
they had a real focus on quality wine and uh, so I can actually say I probably sold the nineteen, you know, ninety five Bannockburn vineyards, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you know, no back in that era. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. And so was that in a particular part of Sydney where there was a, a, an interested clientele? Uh, it was sort of in the inner north. So, yeah, not a bad location for that. But they served, you know, such was their sort of ambition that they, they served the greater part of Sydney and the, the, the downtown as well. So it was located in one one place but served quite a big uh, chunk of Sydney. Mm. And and at what point did you kind of think about well, like you studied engineering? Did you kind of head in that direction at all? What 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 point did you kind of go eh, wine? That might be interesting. Yeah, well, it was more and more in my mind. But uh, at the conclusion of engineering, I, I had a year where I did a bit of travel, and uh, during that year, I uh, I I uh, yeah, I guess I I applied for uh, entry to Charles Sturt University. So. By the time I'd finished engineering, I knew well enough that I didn't want to do engineering, although I'd enjoyed it. But yeah, I'd probably also started to think about uh, wine as a career. And you thought about winemaking, or because growing up in, you know, the largest city in Australia, it's not necessarily something that you think about as far as going and, and working in, in in a region or you know whether it's farming or whether it's winemaking. Mm. Um, did, did you think about becoming a winemaker, or did you just sort of this is the entry into the the wine industry is to go and study how to make wine. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I, without really knowing what a winemaker did, I had chosen to become a winemaker, and right? I, okay. And then I found out about you know what it actually entails. But yeah, that it was to be a winemaker. Can you remember back then if there were particular wines or producers or wine regions that might have influenced you a little bit more? I. I guess the Hunter stands out because it was uh, the local region. But, you know, for example, I can remember in 1986 uh, it was actually labelled as a, a Hunter Riesling from Tyrrell. So the VAT 1 used to be called a, a Hunter Riesling and a, a friend of mine's father had a nice cellar and uh, he said, oh, you know, I don't like Riesling very much and gave us this bottle of 1986 Semyon. And uh, so... Can you, ima- can you imagine a time where they wouldn't have wanted to label it as Hunter Semyon? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Well, depending on who you talk to, maybe that time has come around again, but it, it's a tough sell, unfortunately, <laughs> but that was a beautiful one. So, yeah, it was... It, the, the region probably was the Hunter, but, you know, just like everybody, I started with the uh, the more understandable wines you know the the south australian type of things and then gradually it got to cooler climates via you know great southern plantagenet shiraz or something like that mount langy and then you know increasingly towards uh, the true uh, cool climate style did you have any opportunity before you started your studies to go and visit any wine regions I think I had been to one or two, just to, you know, maybe to Orange, uh, definitely to the Hunter Valley by that stage, but nowhere outside of uh, New South Wales. Did Because uh, I'm interested to know, um, did you kind of know what a, a winemaker's uh, job is and, and the life, I guess, particularly in terms of, you know, working 20-hour days kind of thing during vintage? And- I had no idea at all. Now, I, I, I saw winemakers in their role as, you know, salespeople, spokespeople for their brands uh, at tasting events. So I was familiar with that part of things. Uh, I guess, you know, I had read magazines or, you know, seen photos. But you just – you hear – 
you, you understand the reported story, not the actual story. W- was this at a time where like people, like winemakers' names were discussed and that they were kind of put into a position where, oh, that's that's a, an aspirational position to, to have in the wine industry? It was, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I would say at that time there was a lot of people who've now retired and I think that partly explains the sort of diversity all of a sudden a step forward in Australian uh, winemaking perhaps. But at the time it was all of the guys who had, uh, you know, been a big part of the export boom and uh, so Philip Shaw, uh, people like Gary Farr for sure, um, uh, John Duval was, for example, the the Penfolds winemaker at the time, I think. And so it was these people who were at the top of their career through that, you know, late 80s, 90s period of time, the export to the UK and the US. And uh, so those names were a big deal because, in fact, they were a big deal. So that was, that was sort of towards the mid to late part of that first big boom for Australian wine, both in Australia and overseas. So, yeah. and, and these are names who... Who put a lot of these Australian wine brands on the map, as it were, mm. and then you know eventually they they stepped away and maybe they went and did their own project. Um, so so what was it like going? You were you moved to to Wagga to study? I did move to Wagga, yeah, and uh, so that was an interesting experience. That's the first time I'd lived in a, a town of that size. So Wagga's fifty thousand people. And, uh, Which is pretty big for for country. Yeah, for but Australia. still, to my eyes, but, but it looked compared yeah, to Sydney. <laughs> first time, you know, that uh, I'd seen so many Utes with uh, you know four inch uh, exhaust pipes and all of the other you know kind of fun stuff. <laughs> BNS balls and stuff. like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, you know the Gold Cup uh, horse race. You know, just all of the fun stuff of the country. That was uh, you know a, a part of of the experience, and of course, a, a big part of the experience was. The people I got to meet, and uh, you know, the wine that we drank, and uh, you know, sort of the adventures we had. We went on on tours of different uh, regions, and yeah, started to go overseas a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was fun. It was great. That would have been uh, fantastic to to not only have the opportunity to to taste quite widely, depending on you know who you were studying with, but also considering that a, a lot of your fellow students would have come from very different parts of the country, whether they were also. Uh, from metropolitan uh, cities, or whether they were from rural areas, that might have would have been great to be exposed to lots of different backgrounds, and, and and that possibly would have influenced you in your studies as well. It was, yeah. I mean, if I can contrast it with engineering, which was largely males, uh, mostly you know, kind of people who had just left high school, uh, mostly from Sydney. Obviously, some people from outside of Sydney. Going from that to a, a cohort that included, uh, you know, a guy who was a, a former dancer with the Royal Ballet, had come from Mount Isa wow. via London to us and, uh, you know, all kinds of careers uh, and and backgrounds. And so that was much more diverse. I mean, I'm not going to change uh, perhaps, unfortunately, the, the ratio of males to females didn't uh, change uh, an awful lot, but uh, certainly the backgrounds and the fact that we'd all all just about all i think there was one or two school leavers in there but most people had had a a previous life before arriving there so that certainly changed uh the mix and and the way it worked were you getting some uh, early vintage experience at that point i did yeah so i started uh straight away i got quite a lot of subjects credited to me so i didn't have a particularly full load and because of the engineering stuff yeah Yeah, and so a lot of the basic sciences uh, i did not have to do 
so I finished um, earlier and did less uh, each year. So I was able to do two vintages uh, for the time I was there each year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, both in Australia? No, well, I, it started with Hunter Valley. So that was my first winery experience was out there. Then I went to California and this is in uh, 2001, just after the 9-11. So uh, it was an interesting time to be there. And then the following year from... Yeah, 2002, I went to Dramana Estate and uh, later that year, be scratching to come up. Maybe that was Canada. I first went to Canada. But, uh, yeah, it was basically a, a process of opening up James Halliday's book, which was not as thick back in those days, thumb through and try and find a producer that made, uh, you know, some interesting varieties in a region that uh, was of interest. And so Dramana Estate... Uh, was notable in those days. I mean, there's quite a lot of Nebbiolo around today, but uh, those guys were one of the, the pioneers with the I range. Gary Crittenden is a real pioneer in a lot of senses, both on the peninsula and and then just identifying uh, you know styles that would be of interest and and ways to present them to the public. So it was a great place to work. Early on, were you uh, very much in a mindset of? wanting to explore as much as possible, finding things that you were possibly a little bit unfamiliar with or you'd, you'd heard about and wanted to learn more about as far as going and working in California or in, in Canada, for example? Mm. There wasn't a lot of strategy to it, I would say. I mean, part of the the great uh, thing about being a winemaker is that you can do this travel, that there are people you know, ready to uh, you know, find you a car and, and a house and, uh, you know, kind of introduce you to their country and uh, go and have some fun with you. And so I certainly benefited from a lot of that. But, you know, I, I was looking for something new, uh, never really sure, just like you are with, with most things, you're never really sure what you're getting into. So there was always unexpected positives and, and a few, you know, kind of unexpected negatives. And then the, the, the known or uh, anticipated positives were definitely to try and expand my, you know, sort of range of experiences, and generally it would be that uh, cool climate was was in my mind. But to some extent, uh, in those early days, I went to California uh, because a friend of a friend uh, found me that uh, that job over there. Whereabouts was it in California? It was actually south of San Francisco in the um, uh, Salinas Valley, right, so, okay. Monterey, which um, yeah it was yeah it was a, a really fun experience it's not the the sort of visited uh napa valley type of experience it's a very rural uh windswept uh it's a bit away from the coast isn't it it's yeah there's a valley there's a, the, the the bay goes down to uh monterey which is a, a in uh john steinbeck's day it was you know the sort of cannery road and there's a uh, a really good um Yes, yeah, sort a of tourist experience along there in general, but then you move away from the bay. You're still influenced by the bay, and in fact, all of the the regions of California are affected by the the fog from the the inversion the, uh, the the cold water. So you have to be reasonably close to the bay in order to benefit from the fog. Without which, you know, a lot of those regions actually end up being very hot. So the fog is this sort of blanket that uh, protects it. Um, from being too hot and so you arrive at work you can't see more than about 20 meters away and the music's sort of a little bit uh slower the the mexican guys who are a big part of the labor force are you know less upbeat 
then the uh, the sun burns the fog off. Everyone gets a little bit happier and everyone gets a bit more uh, energetic. And I'm sure uh, it's an early start as well. It is an early start, yeah. And but just without that sun, you know, it's uh, it's something you have to get used to. So it's sort of a cycle every day of, of fog burning off sunshine, and uh, and then yeah, back in the afternoon, the the wind would start to pick up and uh, and we'd all uh, come back in. So. Yeah, it was uh, it was that was fun. It was I must admit illegal, uh, but uh, and at the time with the the nine eleven and are you with us or against us? All of the the stuff that was on the uh, you know the talkback radio stations and just in general the conversation it was uh, pretty emotional. Uh, Probably not dissimilar to the kind of conversations that are going on now. Yeah, well that's right. Yeah, it's. Uh it's it's a it's an awkward one, but uh, certainly at the time. I mean, I was on the I think about the first or second flight back. They cancelled flights, obviously, and then when they started it back up again, I was on that flight, and there was a lot of Americans on that flight, and they were all in you know kind of confusion and and upset, and so yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time. Not positive uh, in every sense, of course, but definitely interesting. Mm. Uh, so, when did you kind of start to? set roots somewhere with the, with a slightly more permanent position? Uh, that came with Dramana Estate offering me uh, an assistant winemaker role. So that was at the conclusion of the studies. Um, I went down there and so was based there for a couple of years and uh, as the assistant winemaker, which was you know pretty fortuitous to get a role like that straight out of uh, university. So as I said, it was a great place to work with the, the spread of varietals. We King Valley, uh, Yarra Valley, Mornington Peninsula. Uh, had you had much experience with the Italian grape varieties or Italian Italian wines? No, no, really very little actually. So, I mean, everyone you know, would have had a Chianti or two, but Australian-made Italian varietals uh, was a big part of why I chose Dramana and it was a, a big learning curve too, just the, you know, the tannin structure and the – the lack of plushness that you sort of get used to with, uh, you know, the way that a lot of the French wines are made. So yeah, it was it was great great to learn more about uh, a different style of wine, a different intention, really. Yeah. Okay. How long did you end up at uh, Dramano Estate? How how long was this before Gary stepped away and 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 started the Crittenden brand? Uh, well, while I was there. Gary, uh, I think, floated it on the stock exchange, and at that time, uh, it became uh, owned by a group of guys from Melbourne, and so that was probably the beginning of that process. And obviously, it's it's come to uh, to be complete now with the the wonderful uh, cellar door and experience you have down there these days. So, yeah, it probably just just begun uh, beginning uh, at that stage. Mm. Uh, how, how long were you down in the Mornington? Uh, so that was from 2002 through to 2004, and then 2005 I went across to, to Bannockburn. The other side of the bay. The other side of the bay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, was the, the, what was the shift across to that, that first time you were at Bannockburn? Was it like- uh, well, in 2004, Gary Farr finished up at Bannockburn, and so – the family that owns the business uh, were looking for somebody to fulfil the winemaking role for a a short period of time. It's sort of a, a mark of the the character of, of the the group that uh, they didn't want to poach anybody that close to harvest. And so this was I started in January, I think, from memory, and uh, obviously then started picking grapes a couple of months later. So they didn't want to appoint anybody and upset someone else's business in the mm, process. Mm. And so they needed somebody to, f- 
to do the winemaking for a, a period of time. Did were you given sort of quite clear instructions, or was there any form of handover from from Gary? Or no, Gary had gone his own way at that point. So the I, the instruction that I got from the family was to try and uh, make wine like Gary, so that uh, there wasn't going to be two changes of style necessarily you know in that period of time so to try and be continuous with with what gary was trying to achieve and then allow the next person to come in to to change if they wanted to whatever they would like so okay was that challenging yeah well i think uh you know i had a twitch in my left eye that lasted for about a year afterwards (laughs) so if that tells you something but yeah it was no no pressure or anything no pressure at all no it was uh, first uh, first chief winemaking gig yeah and can you make wine like the (laughs) uh i think he was the the australian winemaker of the year in 2001 so you know there was a reason why bannockburn was considered to be one of the top producers in the country there was a very good reason for it yeah and so i mean it was it was a lot of pressure in in the sense of uh it being at the limit of my uh, capabilities. But uh, there was uh, a, a vineyard manager who at that point in time had been there for, I'm guessing, about 15 years then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And a, 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 um, a seller hand who had been there working with Gary for quite a long time too. The family obviously are the same group that started the business. So there's uh, one one part moved away, but there's certainly some other parts that are still in place. And with the exception of that cellar hand, we've still got that same vineyard manager and, and the, the two daughters that own the business today. So unfortunately, I never got a chance to meet Stuart Hooper, who who did start the business. Right, okay. So it was just that, that one vintage you did initially at Bannockburn? It was, yeah. No, I was already on course to go to British Columbia at that point in time. I'd met a girl and we'd uh, sort of exhausted her visa possibilities in australia and so i had um applied for residency in british columbia and uh that was something that i was doing while i was uh, making wine at bannockburn was you know police checks and uh going to visit a doctor and uh filling out endless uh forms to to finalize that so that that was always going to be the case and uh as i said that suited them fine sure okay so you you shifted up to to BC. I did, yeah. Now having worked there in two thousand and two, as I said, that was is that where you met her. Uh, that was when I yeah I was doing my final exams uh, at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, oh. which um, yeah it worked out quite handily because great uh, city. Yeah, it's a beautiful place, and um, if the exam was at nine o'clock on Monday morning in Australia, it was also at nine o'clock on Monday morning in British Columbia, but that's 18 hours afterwards. So I may have had uh, a couple of hints about what was in the uh, <laughs> exams. Uh, Hopefully, no, I may not. No uh, one's listening. No, nah, well, <laughs> I'm friends with a couple of CSU lecturers, so I hope they don't hold that against me. But yeah, you know, I, mean, I think at this point, they're not exactly going to take it off you. No, no, no. no I, I, it wasn't uh, more than a, uh, a hint, as I say, but uh, it did allow me to have a a bit more fun. I had a couple of friends in town and it is a lovely place to hang out. So uh, yeah, I met uh, Danielle uh, in the process of doing that. So you, when you went back to British Columbia, was were you going to work for a, a winery there? I wasn't going to go work for a specific winery. I was going to go to work in uh, the Okanagan, uh, but hadn't narrowed it down at that point. Actually, you know, so post-Bannockburn, I wasn't, um, you know, racing towards needing something substantial at that time. Uh, but as it happened, I found something uh, via a couple of friends that I'd worked with in 2002, and it was a, um, 
yeah, a company that was just starting to create a, a brand and start uh, producing a range of wines and uh, and revitalising uh, the vineyards, uh, taking out some of the the older uh, sort of Swiss uh, influenced varieties, which is a big part of the the region uh, back in the day was. Uh, Swiss people and German people moving there, so they brought with them Kerner and Optima and Schassler and uh, other less than uh, you know amazing varietals. But they're all cold hardy, which is certainly important there. So yeah, more modern clones of Pinot Noir and and uh, and Chardonnay and uh, Riesling. Riesling for sure. Yeah, we made a lot of Riesling. That was one of the varieties that actually was planted as far uh, as long ago as 1978. So of a clone that you would choose today if you were planting in British Columbia and on a spacing that you would choose today. And Fortunate. Uh, so, yeah, amazing, really kind of uh, just as you would want it. So, And for that matter, some of the old Pinot and Chardonnay were uh, were good too, perhaps not as helpful uh, for winemaking as that Riesling clone 21B from memory. Yeah, so there was definitely Riesling as, as a big part of the mix. So um, Okanagan Valley is a... Pretty cool climate. I mean, Canada in general is uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's cold in winter. Like it's funny that a place that is known for uh, for for its winter actually has a pretty lots hand- of skiing. Yeah, lots of skiing, and certainly did lots of that. But the summer is uh, extremely dry. The days are extremely long, and uh, as you can maybe tell from the the news at the minute with all the bushfires over it sounds there, sounds a bit like New Zealand. It is a bit like New Zealand. Uh, it's hotter than New Zealand, though. So it's okay. actually um, the northern tip of the Sonoran Desert. Uh, so there's actually rattlesnakes and cactus in the vineyard, if you can believe it. So, wow. Yeah. It's, and well, I suppose the, they, they also have the stampede in Calgary. So That's right, they, yeah. They must, they must get some warmth. Yeah, that, Calgary. That side of the, uh, the Rockies. That, that side of the Rockies is a bit more sort of uh, at the mercy of weather that can come from the north, where in the mountains uh, but open to the south as we were, or as it is, um, yeah, you, you tend to get a pretty reliable, hot, long summer, mm-hmm. definite sort of end and start to it. So it, it's not, it doesn't uh, sort of continue like Australia. If you needed another 20 days of ripening in Australia, a lot of the time you'd get away with it. If you needed 20 extra days in the Okanagan, the leaves have fallen off because the temperatures you know, overnight have gone below zero. Mm. And so the vines just uh, have reached the end of what is possible for them. So the, the, the start and end are more definite, but the middle, surprisingly enough, is uh, perfectly adequate to ripen most varieties. Were you in British Columbia for, for a while and were you sort of there permanently or were you I was doing there. some more travel as well? Well, I mean, at that time I started travelling down to New Zealand and Australia and so you mentioned New Zealand, that was the obvious place to go. So I went to central Otago and uh, just outside of Nelson to do harvests and then uh, swung over to Australia, went to, um, uh, I can't remember the order of this, it's, uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> That's the, all right. a lot of harvests, but... Yeah, I, I worked uh, again with Riesling producers in Victoria and Western Australia and then uh, ultimately did a harvest with uh, Paul Bridgman at uh, Levantine Hill uh, just a couple of years ago. So yeah, I started doing the reverse um, to what I had been doing, which was travelling north for harvest while maintaining a full-time t- job in the, the south the opposite was happening and so that was great uh, opportunity to learn as well and so I was there ultimately for 10 
well, I was away for 10 years. And so that would be four years in that first role at Tantalus, one year in California, and then five years again back in British Columbia at a winery called Liquidity. Mm. Uh, one of the obviously interesting things about Canada uh, as far as the provinces is that they control the the supply of of alcohol was was that an interesting as, as far as making wine in British Columbia was that also interesting as far as the distribution of, of wine yeah well it I hadn't had enough to do with the Australian distribution to really recognize how strange it is but it yeah it's via prohibition basically every province of Canada and every state of the United States is its own uh, regulatory um, boundary. And mm-hmm. so you need to, you know, register every product in each one of those, which uh, it's, it's yeah. And, and so it does suit um, uh, some, you know, for example, bigger companies it, it find it easier to work within that framework and so that they're in favour of it. Smaller companies uh, struggle a little bit, so... Uh, big companies have that power to to maintain things. The unions that are they in certainly it. employ plenty of people to handle red tape. They do. That's right. They well resourced, and uh, so that's a good thing. You know, big companies de- definitely have an advantage in that regard. Uh, the the distribution and the retail uh, a lot of the times was uh, was also government, and so that's a union that's involved there. And then the government itself was uh, receiving. I think the second biggest. Uh, money spinner for British Columbia after income tax was the billion odd dollars that they got from um, from being involved with the the liquor game so yeah there's some it's it's hard to say if it wasn't the case what would be a good reason to go to all of that you know sort of um, inefficiency and uh, and and layers of bureaucracy but it is just sort of a um, a prohibition uh, era left mm. over and, and is maintained uh, to a great extent too. And at what point did you um, head back to Australia? Uh, in 2015, the family that owns Bannockburn got in touch with me and said that uh, Michael Glover had returned to New Zealand. His father has a vineyard over there and uh, he was getting to an age where it was either going to be that uh, someone needed to help him with it or uh, they were going to sell it as I understand it. So Michael went back there, and it's probably been, you know, he is a new, he's I think he's born in Australia actually, but I think he, uh, you know, was probably pretty keen to get back to uh, the country he identifies as home. So that went down in late 2014. They got in touch with me at that point in time and said, "Do you want to come back?" And I was actually thinking at the time to find a new role. Uh, at a new company, or not a new company, a different company. I hadn't actually thought to come back to Australia, but um, you know, you don't say no to Bannockburn when they <laughs> offer you a job. So uh, I, I did, and so that was four weeks before I got back. So it was a pretty busy four weeks of finishing up my previous role. Uh, you know, spending time with all my fam, uh, my friends uh, over there, and uh, and then yeah. And then getting on a plane, sleeping, and then starting harvest. I think we started picking grapes about three days after I got back. So far out. Mm. The uh, the twitch didn't come back. Twitch, twitch didn't come back. No, no. It's, uh, I'm a <laughs> bit more relaxed. You, you were about given it. a bit more carte blanche about you know. Well, we're happy for you to take it in into a direction that you're more confident with, or, or you're more yeah, comfortable with. No, that, and that's always been the case at Bannockburn. Is you know, with the exception of that small role that I had in 2005. The winemaker has a lot of autonomy to uh, to do really whatever they would like um, 
within the limits of 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 what's possible. So whilst maintaining, you know, the the, the quality and the the always of quality, the, yeah. the identity of Bannockburn. Mm. Well, there's some things that you can't change, and that's the terroir. And there's some things that you can change, and that's um, you know some wine making decisions that uh, we all we all make. So. I mean, the obvious one is which day do you pick it? So every winemaker has a sense for when a grape is ripe, but there's no – I'm sure there are some objective ways of measuring this kind of stuff, but it's done on on feel. And so starting from that decision, we all impact uh, the way the wine will taste, but the, the thing that yeah, is common between winemakers is the terroir. So. Mm. I, I, I would assume that – uh, that first vintage, you know, it would have just been like, okay, let's get in there and and see what happens. But once you'd kind of settled back in a little bit, and you had the opportunity to to sort of spend more time in the vineyard and you know have a, a more relaxed opportunity to meet uh, staff, and then heading out, you know, head, heading to Melbourne, for example, heading to visit other wine producers. What were your impressions about how Australian wine had changed and the Australian wine market had changed? Because even, you know, even though you were coming back to Australia periodically, it would have just been for harvests. Mostly you wouldn't have had an opportunity to, to you know, to reconnect with, with friends or, or meet, you know, new winemakers that might have uh, been doing some interesting things in the previous 10 years? Yeah, it's been one of the pleasures of, of returning is meeting those people and, and seeing what they're up to. But it's just so diverse, you know. It's uh, with that generation that was, uh, you know, that, that founded the, the modern Australian wine industry, uh, mostly retired or, or doing other things, whatever. But uh, the people that have stepped into the breach are, are doing everything, not not just one version of winemaking. So it's it's fascinating to to see you know what what is out there. But yeah, the market is uh, is you know that James Halliday. Um, maybe this is the McDonald's uh, Big Mac uh, way of measuring things. But the book is you know kind of two inches thick and. Uh, the number of different with, ver- with points to match with <laughs> that's right yeah no that's <laughs> oh, yeah it's uh, the points have gone up over time that is for sure uh, the number of different varieties must have uh, doubled or trebled uh, the yeah the 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 structure of the industry in terms of the number of small producers that certainly wasn't the case it just was a, a bit more. You know, small, medium, large companies, less of this individual um, winemaker type of um, brand that we have today. So, yeah, it's it, it evolved. And, and from a distance, I tried to understand it, but you can never really understand it until you're a part of it. And uh, so, yeah, it's been great to see to see those changes up close. Were you able to, to get out much in terms of and, and, and drink more wines? And what did you perceive that uh, the the range of wines that were being consumed in Australia had changed and the accessibility to slightly more obscure wines from around the world, you know, whether it be a stylistic thing or a region from Europe or, you know, country, South America, North America? Mm, well, uh, yeah, I guess... Uh I'd seen the rise of sommeliers as influencers uh, in North America, uh, and so they are all, all always looking for something that's new and interesting, and that's uh, that drives a lot of, you know, what is um, is spoken about, what is is consumed. So yeah, it's to to see that change. Uh, as I say, I saw it in North America, the sommeliers and. Uh, 
perhaps more wine is being consumed uh, by a greater number of people. Uh, it's not as old-fashioned. I mean, I can go back to that 1995 era where the range of Pinots on a shelf was about you know, 10 wines wide. And now if you go into Dan Murphy's, it's about, you know, kind of uh, half a kilometre long, yeah. uh, the the shelf of Pinot. So just the, the depth and uh, the demand for something to, you know, kind of tell a story of, of Pinot Noir, but Pinot Noir from, from Ballarat, you know, and so let's go and get something that Owen Ladder made. And so that there was no Ballarat Pinot back in those days. So yeah, it's it's amazing the options that you have. It's almost overwhelming, probably. How did uh, that um, evolution, I guess, or, or change in direction influence what you've wanted to do with Bannockburn in the the last couple of years? And and um, um, hopefully you had an opportunity to sort of taste wines during the Michael Downer kind of era to sort of get an idea about where he was taking Bannockburn and and where you might want to kind of um, put your sort of nuances on it? Yeah, I, I certainly have had a, an opportunity to drink lots of Michael's wines and uh, they're fascinating. You know, he's a, a really original thinker, um, extended time in the winery, uh, almost allowing wines to become complex and stable and then bottling that complexity, which is the opposite of what a, a lot of the Yarra Valley, uh, just to pull a, a region out of the out of the ether, seem to be making very, you know, kind of tight, uh, strapped down wines, but then with the expectation that it will develop in in bottles. So, what he was doing was completely unfamiliar to me, but completely amazing too. Um, I guess rather than responding to to things, I, I just have over time developed a way to make wine that that makes a wine that I like to drink. And so that that is the thing that's familiar to me. So uh, I would say uh, I'll probably, yeah, I guess I, I'm trying to create an environment uh, both in terms of the vineyard and the winery and, uh, you know, just the systems that we have in place that's familiar to me so that uh, this way of making wine is most intuitive and then, you know, we do the least amount to it, which is what I always have been trying to do. So I'm not really responding to, to Michael's wines. I'm not responding to anybody's wines. It's it's pretty boring, really. I'm just trying to do what I know, you know, sort of is a reasonable uh, chance of success. So uh, that's... It sounds it, like you're trying to tune out a lot of the bullshit and white noise and sort of focus on, on what, what's, what is at the core of it. Yeah, I mean... I, Almost to the extent that while I have a personal interest in drinking wine, that is parallel to what I'm trying to do at Bannockburn. What I really want to understand is the vine- are the, the vineyards, the variation uh, between them. Uh, you know what what it all means in in soil, in vine spacing, in clones, in alignment, in aspect, uh, and then the less glamorous stuff like the equipment, the people. Uh, you know the all all of the, the the stuff. I look inward. That's my my real uh, the thing that takes my uh, whatever brain power I have. And then recreationally or socially, I will drink wine and enjoy it. But it's only sort of recently that I've started uh, paying proper attention to to wine again. It's it's been the 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 thing that has been in my mind is the site that's the that's the thing that i have to understand sommeliers have to understand wines and it's not it does help me but 
the thing that most helps me is is best understanding the site and the equipment and the the culture of the place and uh, working within that. What have been some of the more profound um, changes or, or finesses that you've had in the last few years? Oh well, I'd like to do something profound, but I uh, I would say that the <laughs> significant the, significant that might be a better word. Yeah, no, I, I we've turned the taps back on. So Michael was very uh, determined not to irrigate, but um, I just think it's too dry, and uh, so in order to capture the essence of a cool climate, you need to have a uh, you know a full canopy and that gets back to that stuff about spacing and uh, so basically I just want a full canopy of sufficient leaf area to protect the fruit but also uh, ripen it in a in a slower way the less irrigation you you put on the more they tend to individual sort of bush vine type um, scenarios where there's not the microclimate created uh, that is that complete uh, canopy wire so we're getting pretty technical here but irrigation would be the short answer to to that even yeah i guess on top of that having created the 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 liveliness or the tension and and the interest in the the grapes i would try and bottle that a little bit earlier again like i say michael was was doing some pretty fascinating stuff and, and the wines are awesome but it's not something i'm familiar with so we've brought the bottling forward a little bit to just capture the the, the, not freshness, but just a bit more of the the liveliness of the wine. Right. Okay. How have you um, the the perception of the wine since you've taken over um, with in terms of the the trade and and media and and consumers? Hopefully, um, what have people been saying about the wines since you've stepped in? Oh, look, we're a brand that, luckily enough, has been you know around longer than I have. We started in nineteen seventy four, so it's certainly resident in a lot of people's minds and it's part of the story of victorian wine and, and australian wine so there's a lot of um you know positive goodwill uh towards the brand there's uh, a lot of people that have old wines in their cellars and and we actually have quite a good uh, library of of wine in the uh the warehouse uh too so uh the response is is uh, you know it, it, it's it's sometimes is overwhelming in in the the regard that people have i go to tastings and a lot of the time people know more about bannockburn in a particular sense than i do you know they're telling me about this and then that and then that it's okay so i'm actually just going to shut up and listen to you uh kind of thing so uh yeah it's 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 great it's 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 as i say it's very fortunate but that's one of the advantages of being a uh an early into the market uh, brand is you just get that traction and uh, and so we have. What's uh, something, can you tell me one thing, one really dynamic thing you might want to do which probably wouldn't come to fruition that, that you would want to do at Bannockburn, whether it be introduce a, an entirely new variety or, uh, an, you know, a new winemaking technique? Mm, that's a good question. I, I I'm just trying to satisfy myself that every small thing is being done best as it can and then maybe i'll lift my gaze and and think about a uh, a more substantial thing but really for the meantime i can't <laughs> it's answer very, it's it. a very diplomatic response oh no no that's just the way that my mind works to be honest with you i'll dream but uh firstly i'll put 
a foundation in place that uh, means that when I do go to do that thing, then I believe it will succeed. So, yeah, it, it's it takes uh, the last couple of companies that I've worked for, I have built the winery or you know started the brand and. So being part of the story from the get-go. And so that's a fascinating uh, thing to be a part of too. But uh, it, to go to an established brand like Bannockburn has been an adjustment in the way I think about things too. So I'm not used to actually arriving at a, a brand like Bannockburn and taking on you know, this position. That's not, that's not what I'm used to. I could start up a business, uh, you know, create a brand. That's all quite familiar to me. So even just learning... Uh, how to in, you know involve myself in the company in the best possible way? All the the small boring stuff, but uh, yeah, <laughs> give me uh, give me a couple of years and I might have a more dynamic answer for you. All right, well I, I'll I'll see you back here in two years then. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Matt. I really do appreciate your time. Uh, I'm sure people can find out more information about uh, Bannockburn on the Bannockburn website. Yeah, yeah, BannockburnVineyards.com. Uh, are they? Are there any social media accounts? We're a bit lax in that. We're trying to uh, trying to up our game. Been in, around in that since regard. 1974. You're not in a hurry to jump on the bandwagon <laughs> no, of social no, media. No, <laughs> but I really do appreciate you making the trip, and uh, and it's been uh, great to finding out more about your background. Thanks very much. Cheers, James. And as always, thank you listeners for joining me on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter uh, at Intrepid Wino. And you can also find the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I'd love for you to check out my Intrepid Wino YouTube channel. Lots of uh, Let's Taste uh, wine tasting videos on there, including uh, some Bannockburn wines, which I recently opened. Uh, and also my videos chronicling my journey making my own wine, the last two vintages uh, under the Vino Intrepido uh, brand, uh, which I'm finally about to release. So please do stay tuned if you are more interested uh, and would like to uh, perhaps buy some wine. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on any number of different podcast sharing apps or platforms, uh, including iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean. Uh, you can now check out the podcast on iHeartRadio. Uh, subscribing basically means that you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available, and you can check out any of the previous 123 episodes. Uh, and I'd love for you to please leave me a rating and a review because that does provide great feedback for myself and guests, uh, and also it helps to uh, get the podcast out to a bigger audience so i really do appreciate people who make the time to leave a rating and review of course all that information is available on my website intrepidwino.com lots of different content including uh, my blog where i've done different writing in the past Uh, and there's also ways of getting in contact with me so i'd love to hear from you please do reach out if you'd like to uh, uh, tell me why you like the podcast or potential guests you'd like to hear from uh, I, of course, uh, appreciate the support of the podcast network that I'm a part of called Earbuds. The Earbuds network is a Melbourne podcast network. Uh, there are lots of fantastic shows on the network, so I do, I do recommend checking out earbudsnetwork.com and follow them on Facebook as well. Uh, but until next time, guys, bye. Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com.